And now, coming to you live from the Gershwin Room, high above the Coot Street Motel 6, it's Jonathan Stroud and Gary K. Wolf with special guest award-winning writer Eileen Gunn on the Coot Street Podcast! Oh, that gets longer every week. Congratulations, Jonathan. And it's congratulations. very impressive. Thank you very much. I, I, I know. I could never do that. Look, when you only make one uh, contribution to the podcast each week, you, know, you want to make it count. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but anyway, welcome, Eileen. It's a pleasure to have you with us. Thank you. It's a delight to be here, wherever here is. Well, well that's a good question. We're, in, we're not in cyberspace. We're in pod space, we, we, uh, I guess. That sounds unpleasant. Though there's something almost, I guess... Gibsonian about the idea that we're happen we're happening in some sort of third kind of you know sort of secondary electronic space rather than actually in the same place. That's right. Though I can see you on my screen. Me? Yeah. I must have a photo. I they do have a photo. Ah, yeah. okay. Rather than the camera, so. Which is, which Gary, is just, there's just an empty chair where Gary would be. <laughs> That's not metaphor. Okay, maybe that is metaphorical. Story of my <laughs> life. <laughs> Anyway, well, well, we want to congratulate you because this month, uh, I don't know exactly the date, but Questionable Practices, your second short story collection, is out. Is it actually out now? Yes, yeah, see, the, the Questionable Practices seem to start with the publication date. It, huh. it actually, I have my copy, and, and Small Beer has sent out copies to people. They have copies. And it's in stores. Actually, before I got my copy, a small uh, store in, in Oregon turned out to have it. One of my friends on, on Facebook said he, he had been called by his bookstore and his order had come in. And that was in February. Wow. It's scheduled to be published. Originally, it was scheduled for the 18th of March. Then it was scheduled for the 11th of March. Um I think it's available. I think you can order it and get it from online sources, but it's a little—it's a little vague. It's kind of up to them whether they make it available or not. Uh, well, it's in their it certainly is in their interest to make it available. I would think. You would think. Um, but but I'm I'm glad to see you. Um, well, actually, um, both of your publishers have been good friends of the podcast, Tachyon for the first collection, and now Small Beer Press, but. Small beer seems to be um, very much the kind of, let me put it this way, the kind of fiction which small beer has characteristically published seems to me the kind of fiction written by people who have read stories by Eileen Gunn. <laughs> I think that we're copacetic. Okay, small yeah. Small beer that's, and that's me. A there's, a bit, there's a feedback similar. effect. Yeah, but... Um, but the first question that everybody has, um, and I mentioned this when I was writing a review of it, is that everybody knows Eileen Gunn's stories, and um, some of them are like um, ensconced as classics already, such as Stable Strategies for Middle Management. And this is only the second slim collection of stories you've had in a career that goes back how far? Well, let's see. My first story was published in 78. So I can't okay. figure out whether you're saying I'm an overachiever or an underachiever. <laughs> We're saying you take Each... very great care with your work. <laughs> <laughs> Again, that's say... ambiguous, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I guess the ob one obvious question is, 
given that this uh, that questionable practices basically collects most of the stories or all of the stories from the 10 years between stable strategies and questionable practices is um is there anything that for you brings this book together other than just the chronological period um well kelly and gavin basically um i wasn't sure how many of my stories belong in the book and they they went, you know, they read the stories and went over them, and we had a discussion. And uh, there was one story that they wanted to leave out, and I thought, well, yeah, if that one, that one definitely should leave out. What about this one? Maybe you should leave this one out too. And <laughs> this one over here. And finally, Kelly said, "Do you want any stories in the book?" <laughs> so to me, no, these are stories I've written. It's what I've written in the last ten years, minus the stories. There were a couple of stories that I just felt were kind of trivial or or it didn't belong with the rest of the stories in the book but for the most part this is simply everything i've written in the past 10 years and i think four four or five of them are collaborations with michael swanwick who certainly seems to be go ahead he's been really he's been really impressive at flogging me tricking me into stories sending (laughs) me temptation you know, paragraphs saying, you know, just just one wafer thin word. Mm-hmm. And it's been, it, it, he's been really incredible in terms of upping my output. How has well, that, that collaborate? Sorry, Gary, Gary, go ahead. Go, no, you go ahead, Jonathan. I was going to say, how's that collaboration worked? It's worked well in terms of there being stories and we're still speaking to one another. <laughs> you know, I think as collaborations go, that's really, that's way up in the top. You know, ninety percent of, of way above ninety percentile of, of goodness. Um, the stories. I think we both write better stories by ourselves, actually. Really? Uh, yeah. Is, is that because you don't feel that your strength that your strengths are such that they're better showcased by themselves? Um. No, I just think that we each have certain areas that we're really interested in. Yeah. And we get distracted by the other person's interests. <laughs> so the stories are, they're like both our interests. And the focus, they become a little less focused than our other work, I think. Um, but in terms of, I've learned an enormous amount from Michael. Just about stubbornness and, and just go moving forward when you don't know where you're going. And Michael always knows where he's going. I'm not saying that Michael doesn't. Michael doesn't tell me where he's going. <laughs> but he he seems, things seem to be whole in his mind. And I know that this is an illusion, okay? I say Michael seems to know where he's going. Because mm-hmm. if you press him on it, he says, no, he has no idea. But he has he has a wholeness in his vision that allows him to move forward with some... Um, perhaps unexamined idea of where the story is going. Whereas I'm always like, I, I feel like I'm out on a precipice and, and I'm concerned I'm going to fall off. And one of the things that working with Michael has done is reassure me that I'm not actually going to fall off anywhere, that I can keep going. And that my imagination is just as reliable as anybody else's. And that if I just believe in it and move forward, I'll be fine. So, so the one story, the one very funny story, I should say, in the collection, which uh, 
which you wrote with Michael, and in which you are both characters, shed. It's a story is called <laughs> "Shed That Guilt." Double your productivity overnight. You're telling us that that's less of a joke than it sounds like. It's well, it's we were doing it. We wrote that in public. We wrote that oh, really? as a series of back and forth letters um, during one of the Clarion West fundraising things. Mm-hmm. And so we're both playing characters. But, you know, I was not actually intending it to be a story. It was a game that we were playing online for people to watch. Oh, and well. Michael just, he made it a story. I don't know whether he was planning to write at the beginning. As I say, he tricked me into writing a story. <laughs> and he was very proud of himself. But that sort of seemed to kick off more collaboration because you did what three or th- another what three stories not really not that long after that over the next sort of twelve eighteen months it seems. Well, I think we'd been doing them uh, all along. I think we, there were two stories that we were doing kind of simultaneously. The two ones with the elves at the beginning. Yeah. And uh-huh. I think we were already into that, well into that, um, when when he he was tweaking me about my lack of productivity in public <laughs> you know which just it just I, I i'm quite willing to join in and make up stuff so it's it's yeah it's it's a little view into my psyche but it's an it's a satirical view it's my satirical view of myself well you are speaking of a uh, lack of productivity i think that's a phrase that you used you introduced that into the conversation we didn't <laughs> uh, and but but when you think of the people who are primarily short fiction writers and who are well known for spending a lot of time on a story. Uh, there's Howard Waldrop, there's you, there's Ted Chang now, I guess. In other words, by and large, unproductive short fiction writers tend to be classic short fiction writers. I don't know whether that's a good or a bad thing. I don't know if you can generalize. Um, you know, I'm I'm an I, I'm an advertising writer. I write short. You know, mm. I was. When I was a teenager, I wrote long. I wrote long, long, long letters that were, you know, loosely structured, as we say. (laughs) And I think it wasn't until I got into advertising that I really started focusing on every word, which counts in advertising. Really, you only get the headline to to call somebody's attention to to the ad. And then if you're lucky, they'll read the other three paragraphs. So... I do have this feeling of readers of of having to having to be persuade them to continue reading, and I think long form writers don't have that fear. Now, did you start writing advertising before you were working with Microsoft? Oh, way, yeah. Oh, okay. I mean, I I, I was an advertising writer in Boston. I wrote for a digital. I, I wrote for the agency that handled Digital Equipment Corporation and analog devices and uh, other high-tech companies. I wrote short, punchy, shy at day kind of advertising, clever advertising in the mm-hmm. highest uh, the highest time for that kind of advertising in the late 60s and the early 70s, which was like the peak of uh, when you could be clever and smart in advertising. And that, I think those days are, they're not completely gone, but they're gone for a lot of high-tech ads. I was going to say that would have been the, the- very beginning of the computer industry even doing advertising to the public oh yeah 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 i i wrote advertising for the pdp8 computer which was in its it was in its graying years at the time but um that's the 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 first mini computer the thing that started the whole smaller uh interlinked interconnected 
computer revolution. I wrote a book about it for DECT, actually. Uh, not a long book, but a, a book on the future of computing for Digital Equipment Corporation. And, uh, yeah, it was right there at the end of the beginning, I guess you could say. I was trying to remember, Digital Equipment wasn't the company that Tracy Kidder wrote that book about, was it? Um, uh, that, the Soul that was, of the News. Um, yeah, The Soul of the New Machine. It That's actually, he wrote about, um, I'm blanking on the name of the... Control Data? No, it wasn't no. Control Data. They did big systems. Um, this It was a company that was started by people that spun off from DEC. And ah. I actually have all of this these stories that were not in Tracy Kidder's book. And I'm... I wondered why he didn't use it because he starts off the book with the story of these two guys splitting off from DEC. Data General. Right, that's, that was, why uh, that's why I associate yeah, DEC with that book. What they had envisioned after the, the PDP-8, if, if I can do some horrible Nipari, the PDP-8 was a, uh, an 8-bit computer. I'm sorry, uh -huh. a 12-bit computer. And the, the, the future to these guys that were at DEC was 16-bit computer. And they designed, you know, in their division, a 16-bit computer, um, faster and handled larger words and, and stuff like that, M much, much more advanced computer. And DEC looked at it and they said in their marketing department, oh, that will eat the sales of our, our PDP-8. We can't, we can't make this computer. So the guys got all, you know, distraught, as you can expect an engineer would, at having their baby trashed in such a way. Mm -hmm. And they, they quit. And they went out and they started their own company. But they couldn't use that computer that they had already designed because that belonged to DEC. So they created another 16-bit computer from scratch. And, and it, it ate DEC's lunch. Yes, it was much <laughs> better than the PDP-8. And it was so immensely popular right at, from the start that DEC had to go out and create their own 16-bit computer to compete with it because they could no longer go back to the old 16-bit computer because it had been superseded by, by these guys' new 16-bit computer. And I, to me, that's, that was where uh, Tracy Kidder should have started his book because that's that kind of futility. It goes on over and over and over again in, in high tech. Well, it sounds to me like you know a lot about the history of computing, that, about the prehistory of computing by today's standards, I guess. And it strikes me that that's something that, whether it's in fiction or nonfiction, I'd love to see you write about sometime. Yeah, well, I... I that a general In some ways, I know too much about it to, to write fiction about it. Hmm. What, because but, there's not possibility left because you know all the answers to the questions? Yes, to some extent, and I and I'm not a technical person. They hired me at the ad agency because they thought I was funny, and <laughs> oh, okay. they they said, I mean, I, I like science, I like technology, but really, when I was 23, I guess they they hired me because they just thought I would be fun to have around, and they they said, oh, we'll get banks, we'll have people that aren't technical. And I'm like, really? <laughs> but it was my first job. I did, you know, I didn't. I didn't know. I'd, I'd written some freelance ad copy, but I was not trained as an ad writer. I grew up in advertising. I grew up in my father was a graphic designer, and I so I'd absorbed a lot of advertising uh -huh. stuff, but I had no training, and it didn't even occur to me to question these guys when they they hired me because I was funny. 
Well, actually, you are funny, so that's fine. But uh, <laughs> Yeah, it worked out really well. I loved working with them. How did you like working at Microsoft? Microsoft is, you know, that's a good question. How did I like it? It, In the middle of it, it's you're working with a lot of very, very smart, very contentious people. And that's mm-hmm. not necessarily fun, but it's kind of like, like downhill racing. So you can kind of get worked up into a, a a wonderful kind of fervor doing it. And I I would have to say that I enjoyed working at Microsoft, but it was um, also something I was glad to leave when I left. I really felt I'd had enough fun. And it was time <laughs> to get, get back to work on my fiction, which was the whole reason for working there. You know, it um, it paid well. It and it, it was an area that I knew. I When I started there, I think that I knew more about, had more experience and knew more about the actual selling of computers in advertising, the advertising of computers, than anyone in the company, including mm-hmm. Steve Ballmer. Um, but Ballmer was a marketing guy, not an advertising guy. It seems to me that while we've been talking a lot about productivity or not what we haven't really touched on to some degree is there's been a lot of things that you've been doing over the years in the fictional space if you like or the publishing related space that probably have consumed a lot of your time i mean there's what five years spent editing the infinite matrix i think yeah that that didn't take all my time but it took a lot of my time and i mean that and that was interesting yeah please it was fun to do i'm glad i did it I was, well, what I was going to say was, in many ways, it turns out to be not far off the model that most of the fiction magazines you know, follow today. You know, being well, a, yeah, I actually knew what I was doing. I had managed a very, very large uh, website the previous several years. Yeah, I, uh-huh. so I, I knew I knew how how you had to get people, what you had to give them, how frequently you had to give it to them. I really that stuff was not done in science fiction online. It wasn't done in, in the kind of the low-end online magazines, but the real high-end ones like GORP, which is where I worked, um, which is a site about um, outdoors, international outdoors travel. Um, and we, it was a newspaper. It was a magazine, not, not an advertising mm. site. It's just that when um, I look back at it, apart from having published some amazing fiction uh, and some very interesting nonfiction to go with it, what I notice is that it's probably four or five years off the point where this sort of thing became a viable business model in science fiction. Yeah, that was really where I, I fell down. Was I couldn't figure out how to make it make money. And it, it, part of it is that I just don't care enough about money. <laughs> but, you know, if you don't care about it, you run out of it. Yeah. I ran out of it. <laughs> Well, well it's, I look at it and I think that you know, I mean, today it would would be, would be comparatively simple to put together ebook downloads of it and sell those and all the other kind of things people do. Do you ever look back and wistfully and think maybe it's something that could have continued? Oh, it could have. If you know, if I had basically, it probably would have been smart of me to use some of the money to hire a business manager mm. um, instead of simply trying to raise money and and edit a great magazine. You know, and the magazine because it was tr- I was trying to publish something every day. Yeah. And mm-hmm. even even if I fudged that a little bit by cutting up Bruce's column into daily pieces, <laughs> um, 
the idea was to have something up there every day for people so they'd keep going back and they'd see the new stuff as it came up. Yeah. They wouldn't have to get like reminders that it existed. But I never really I, I can I can do business thinking, but it's hard to do that for myself. It's hard to make my priorities be business. I need somebody else to think was, of that for me. Because you've done a lot of good things for Clarion West, which are uh, helping to keep it afloat. Uh, so it's, it's clear that you, you know, you, you mentioned even writing some of these stories with, uh, with Michael, with, uh, I think, four of the stories in Questionable Practices were written for contributors to Clarion, weren't they? Yeah, that was just least- because... Well, Michael was doing that. These are these are things that that probably didn't bring in that much money for Clarion uh, or Clarion West, but they were fun to do, and they 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 added presence and interest to the site while the fundraising was going on. So Michael had had offered to write a a story a day during the, the write-a-thon in the summer, and that's four. That was forty stories, and. He would every anyone who donated ten bucks could up to the up to forty could um, could have their name in the story, and Clarion West was not expecting the huge flood of of people that came in with their ten dollar bills, you know, and <laughs> so they they didn't get the the faucet shut in time, you know, it, it took an hour and a half to sell out all forty stories, and uh, there were forty forty four forty five people had gotten there their money in and they're like oh what do we do and i said tell them tell them if they want they can have their money back of course or they can i'll write them a story and i'm thinking yeah michael can do a story a day and by that time my my, my and michael was starting to do them and they were all fantastic stories and he really he loves writing short shorts and he he just really writes really well and fast at that length uh-huh. And I thought, I don't know, you know, this was probably really dumb of me to do. But I didn't say I'd do it within during the write-a-thon. And I was still kind of agonizing about this when um, when Tor invited me to submit an idea for their steampunk month. And I mm-hmm. uh, I thought, well, that will make me write the story. So, so I came up with the concept that they would be spin-offs of steampunk novels. And then I had asked the... Um, uh-huh. I made made sure this was all okay with the the uh, people who were going to be in the stories, the people who were donated, and they were all fine. I made sure after I'd written the stories, I I sent copies of them to the people whose whose work I was pastiching, and it was okay with them. Um, but it was really fun, and it was wonderful how well their individual stories. It's almost like a collage to do something like that. How well their individual personal details meshed with the various steampunk stories. People had wonderful backgrounds. They had tattoos. They had had all kinds of stuff that could be slipped in as a wonderful writerly detail in the stories. That's one of the things that has fascinated me about your career from the beginning is that um, apart apart from the the business and professional career, uh, you've been embedded in the science fiction field. And, and to be honest, uh, without exaggerating, you're certainly one of the most respected people in the field. And everybody knows 
what you're doing. Everybody knows uh, at this point your your relationship at one point with Avram Davidson. How did you get involved so deeply into science fiction while writing so little fiction? <laughs> well, there you go. I could be a social <laughs> butterfly or I could write. Um, well, maybe that's it. You know what? I don't. I don't actually know. And, and in terms of of Avram, um, I, I hope people don't think that that Avram was was a lover of mine or anything. He he was a really nice old man. Um, he and and I think that I I got to know Avram because a book dealer who Willie Cyrus, who came to Seattle for a convention, wanted to take some books over to Avram in Bremerton, and I uh-huh. get offered him a ride. You know, I mean, basically, all of my uh, my vaunted connections with with people is just that um, they talk to me and I talk back to them. Uh-huh. And you're and, in, in the right place at the right time. It's every now and again. I guess you know everybody's in that place. I mean, science fiction conventions. Every people, everybody's everybody's there talking to everybody else. So I think that. You know, I yeah, I know a lot of people. Everybody knows a lot of people. Tell me, I'm because I've been curious now. You know, sort of, and we're talking about getting things done. You were were writing a biography of Avram, weren't you? I was trying to, um, and it was too big a project, really, and too. Uh, I managed to write a, like an eight thousand word essay that's about that was biographical about Avram but in some ways but in biography you have to kind of turn people inside out and mm-hmm. I didn't really have the stomach for that I think mm-hmm. I I know I wasn't I, I collected an awful lot of information I interviewed a lot of people um, Avram had his dark sides you know he was very grumpy um, he had family matters that he didn't, he didn't, he said he didn't want them told, but then he left the material lying around for his biographer. Uh-huh. And he was perfectly well aware that he would have a biographer. I would find manuscripts with notes on them saying, to my biographer, you'll be especially <laughs> interested in pages, you know. <laughs> so I had so to knew, assume... But he knew he was an important writer. I'm sorry, I didn't he, he, hear that. He, he understood in his own mind that he was an important writer. Oh, yes. Even though he was more or less exiled to the science fiction community. I mean, what interests me about him, and I think it does relate to your fiction, and I think it relates to the fiction of somebody else we've talked about on this podcast, R.A. Lafferty, who are really interesting, innovative, uh, in some ways radical writers, usually of short fiction, who at the time they were writing could only be published in science fiction venues. And if they were today, if they were around today, they might be in, who knows, Tin House, they might be in literary quarterlies and that sort of thing. But I always got a sense that, um, and I've, I've seen this said about Lafferty in particular, it may be true of Davidson as well, that basically the science fiction editors were the only ones willing to read what they were writing. Uh, that may be true. I, you know, I think that has it may have more to do with the focus of the writer than the editor's 
the outside editors being blind. I think there are certainly are writers now, and there were writers 40 years ago. Kurt Vonnegut sold outside the field, you know, when he figured yeah. out how to do it. Um, the writers who who have sold outside the field pretty quickly drop the moniker science fiction writer and move on to something else. And writers like Kelly Link. Um, is Kelly a science fiction writer? That's a probably, you know, who knows? It, if you, I don't, I've never really liked labels, so I'm always reluctant to put oh. those labels on other people or on myself. Um, but it was easier for me. It was easier for me to think I was writing science fiction than to think I was writing literary fiction. And I think that probably had to do with the writing teacher I had in college who refused to let me write science fiction. She wouldn't take anything fantastic from me personally. Uh-huh. Though oh, other from you students only? <laughs> who, yeah, for those, one of the other students wrote, wrote a hilarious play that was definitely science fictional. But that was okay. She always did everything. She she always cheated. <laughs> she always she always um, traded on her cleverness and her ability to write in ways that I was never could never quite bring myself to do. Thinking yes, I can make the teacher laugh, but that wouldn't be fair. <laughs> so, but and I never made her laugh. She wanted she wanted an Atlantic first writer is what she wanted from everybody in the class. Yeah. And she had one writer who was really potentially a, an Atlantic first writer. But the rest of us were kind of a little more wild-eyed. And I think she just didn't, that wasn't what she wanted. So when I got out of college, you know, I, I had still intended to write fiction. But I spent about two years trying to figure out where I wanted to write it, what it was and everything. And... I felt comfortable writing science fiction in a way that I didn't, if I even moved that that name off of it, whatever I wrote was not necessarily reality-based. But mm-hmm. if I called it science fiction, I was more comfortable with it than if I called it you know, whatever the current term was then. Do you consider yourself a science fiction writer? Oh, I do. Yeah. Um, just because that's how I market it. But also that's what I, you know, I enjoy reading science fiction. I grew up reading science fiction. I, you know, I adored Avram Davidson when I was a kid. I I was actually a little afraid to meet him um, because he was clearly so grumpy. I thought I didn't really want to spoil my my <laughs> feelings about this wonderful writer from when I was a kid. My mother and I would read his, his collections and talk about them. So I'm happy to be a science fiction writer, but I don't want to give people the impression that they're going to have an adventure. (laughs) Mm. What does writing non-realist fiction offer you that writing realist fiction wouldn't? Sasquatches. (laughs) Fair enough. The Sasquatch story was, like, really fun. Yeah. And I got to include, like, a, a couple of my old friends and a former boyfriend and nobody knows because <laughs> it's science fiction. Well, there, there's an interesting thing about that story, which, which although Jonathan won't admit it, he published in an Eclipse anthology. 
uh, and it was one of the high points of the anthology. But the other the other thing, Eileen, that uh, because we, we we get together every once in a while at Wiscon, and clearly in in the whole arena of feminist science fiction and feminist approaches to science fiction, um, you're a major figure, and this is a this is actually a story that deals very directly with gender roles and perceptions of gender roles. Um, and I don't know where I'm going with that at all. I have no question to follow that, except that this is a um, it's it's a very interesting story in terms of um, the the tip tree idea of questioning our ideas about gender, and it does it very directly. And it takes I'm not going to spoil the story for people who haven't read it, but it takes a decided left turn when it ends up on a reality talk show, <laughs> uh, which I thought was hilarious myself. But the, what, what's the res, what's the response you get to a story like that from from uh, from feminine feminist readers? I don't think they have even commented on it. Really? Yeah, I, I don't. Hmm. I don't know that they've read it. Now that it's in my collection, maybe they will have read it. But well, that that kind of asks a, or raises a kind of interesting question because ha, you've been obviously been involved with Wiscon and with the Tiptree for a long time. Um, how aware of gender-related fiction that's being published do you think? We are, I mean, outside of, if you like, the feminist science fiction community, and how aware is the science fiction, the feminist science fiction community of it, in your opinion? There's, there is crossover, um, but it's not universal. So there are people at, at Wiscon who are feminists who read science fiction, and there are people at Wiscon who are science fiction readers um, who aren't terribly well-versed in feminist theory, mm -hmm. but they're women, you know, and they go because there's other women there and it's very supportive. You don't get ignored. You don't get passed over. Right. Um, people don't interrupt you when you're trying to talk. I'm not going to say anything in this silence because it'll sound like I'm interrupting you. <laughs> <laughs> oh, go ahead. Okay. But I think that uh, it's one of the things that I mean. There, there, there's certainly some, you know, there, there's a kind of undercurrent of gender roles in a lot of your fiction, going back to the famous story, Stable Strategies itself. And uh, I do keep up somewhat with the scholarship in the field. And I, it's, it, to be honest, I've not seen uh, a lot of your work discussed in those areas. But there's, in in defense of fellow academics, it takes a few years for the academic world sometimes to discover writers who are actively writing in the field at the time. Um, yeah, Stable Strategies got coverage. That is, people yeah. taught it. Um, they, for all I know, they still teach it. They taught it, I think, because it was in the, um, the Norton, Norton Anthology yeah. of Science Fiction, Book of Science Fiction, um, which put it in front of people's, you know, right. reading. Um, but... Most of most academics look to um, award things, perhaps, to clue them into stuff they should read. Maybe not even that, because so much of science fiction awards are the the works being given awards are not things that the academics are interested in. Well, that's true, and it sometimes takes decades. I mean, academics are uh, the, 
Look, Le Guin is safe among academics. Delaney is safe among academics. But sometimes these are the things that get taught are things that are 20 and 30 and 40 years old. Well, I'd have to say that I don't think that, um, you know, the, my previous book, uh, Stable Strategies and Others, was nominated or was included in the long list for the tip tree. But other than mm. that, I don't think I've had anything nominated for the tip tree. Um, I've never been a guest at Wiscon. Really? I go to Wiscon. I spend a lot of time at Wiscon. Um, but, I, you know, they, they invite me to... Um, to speak, I mean, to the convention as a whole, to introduce people and stuff like that. To mm-hmm. so I don't feel maltreated by Wiscon, but um, I find it difficult to believe that that I'm as um, as revered in the field as you make it sound. Well, I, I, I by the by the field, I kind of meant the whole field. I mean, every um, everybody I knows. I, I know in the field, not not I'm not I'm not just talking about uh, the Wiscon group. I'm talking about the people you come to ICFA. Exactly, everybody there adores you, and it may not be that everybody has read your work. That 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 may be the distinction. I mean, you're a cool person, and that's what one of the reasons people like you. Ah, uh, but then uh, but then obviously the goal here is to be read, is it not? <laughs> right. My curse. <laughs> I mean, is I mean it's, it's great. To be, it's it's wonderful to be wonderful, but the the you know. Is that a frustration for you that you feel you're less read than you might be? I'm probably about as much read as is appropriate for me. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, okay. I don't. I don't. It's not frustrating particularly. I don't. I. I. I always expect every story to be something that nobody will get or understand. So the fact that Jonathan, you buy my stories, and Gary, you understand them, <laughs> is really wonderful. <laughs> Go ahead. No, go ahead. I'm, I'm sorry. Complete just, your thought. I'm, I'm always tickled by by people, editors, actually liking the story and buying it, and and people like yourself, Gary, saying things about it that make me see that I'm doing something that I didn't, I wasn't quite aware of. Let me try an idea out on you because I just thought of it while you were talking a minute ago, uh, that. I can't think of any other writer who has had who has had two successive short story collections, in which the title of the second collection appears to be a commentary on the title of the first collection. So the first collection is called Stable Strategies, and the second collection is called Questionable Practices. Well, the first one is called Stable Strategies and Others. So I think that the unstable strategies are implied. It's not called stable strategies and other stories. It's called stable well, strategies and others. Well, that's okay. That's very clever. Good. So I'm right. Nobody understands what I do. <laughs> Even Gary. Oh my God! I now oh, I, I will have to redact the earlier reviews. Um, but okay, one of the reasons I think that anyone who is a short fiction writer. Uh, gets read less than novelists is because there are a lot of people who don't read much short fiction but read novels. So as yep. with Kelly Link, as with Mary Rickert, as with Ted Chang, as with, well, Howard has done this, but people are waiting for your novel, and I know you're working on one. I am. You want you want me to talk uh, well, about well, it? Well, how yeah. are you progressing? I mean, you know, like, are, are, are you almost done? 
Well, no. I am. <laughs> the fact is that the last three months, I have been working on other things, on getting my short story collection out. On I, I'm just finished writing an essay for the Smithsonian Magazine that will be in the May issue that kind of gives an overview of what science fiction is for in terms of the future. And that was really fun, but it really took took me at least six weeks of mm-hmm. full full attention. Um, and I'm I'm pleased with what I've done, but it's not fiction. And uh, I do think that fiction is is where my best use is, you know, my highest use uh-huh. in in terms of the field is to write write it rather than write about it. Um, so I haven't done anything in three months except think and read. The book is probably, at the moment, the working title is The Education of Samantha Clemens. And it was actually an idea that Michael Swanwick gave me. He thought it was a short story. Uh-huh. And I, he, he, he said, okay, what if, what if Sam Clemens was really Samantha? And what if Huckleberry Finn was a girl and a black girl? <laughs> And and they were escaping, and you know, and he had this plot, and I I thought, oh, I don't think so. <laughs> a short story. I would I would only make enemies. Um, but the more I thought about it, the more I thought, well, if you unfold it, if you if you actually instead of the characters being you know short story characters are not fully fully developed. Usually, you kind of have to make them sound fully developed, but they're not. And uh-huh. I, I thought, but if, if I had a novel where I could actually develop the contrast, really, between the lives of, of a, a white girl child and a black enslaved child in, in the context of, of, of Hannibal in 1847, and then open it out, and the game to me is to make this Samantha Clemens... Um, write exactly the same novels that Sam Clemens wrote. How would a woman write those novels in the 19th century? How would she do that? Where would she get the experience? How would she, you know, ride in the Civil War? How would she even even survive being in an angel's camp or or in the in the gold country? How would she do any of these things that that Sam Clemens did? And it's actually, the more I did the research, the more I found there were lots of women doing things like that. And some of them dressed as men and some of them didn't. Some of them just waltzed out there in, in their floor-length skirts and got to work. Hmm. And so I've been, I've had a lot of help from other people that have had already explored that that kind of research and told me where to look for the books and stuff. Carol Umschwiller lent me a, a stack of books because she had done a lot of work on women in the Southwest in the 19th uh-huh. century. And um, you yourself did a lot of driving around the Midwest a couple of years ago, I remember. Well, I went to Hannibal and I stopped off because because um, hockey is... She, she's got a life too while I'm trying to create um, Samantha's you know, sort of rise to glory, hockey has a life too. And mm-hmm. I was trying to create how she how she got to Canada and have been exploring what she did there. And then, of course, at some point, she and 
and Samantha meet in Canada. And Mark Twain did a speaking tour in that went into Canada just after he had written Huckleberry Finn. And he read from Huckleberry Finn in, Mon- in uh, Toronto mm. in 1884, I think. Just before it was published, while it was r- right on the cusp there. And that's a wonderful place for uh, for Hucky, whose name was Harriet. Hucky was just what people called her. Uh-huh. Um, what what she having her show up as a mature woman, you know, in in she's in her forties or fifties, um, and discover somebody has written her life into a book. This is not necessarily something she's going to be happy with. <laughs> no, I would think not. No. No. Um, and then change her to a white boy, you know. She's she's got a certain, but she she's um, she's really a great character. She's really funny, and she she really she thinks about everything. I really am going to enjoy like following her whole journey. I've been spending a little more focus on on uh, Samantha on on the facts of Twain's life because there's facts there to deal with that I've got to fit into the book. Basically, Mark Twain was a performance that Samuel Clemens gave. Mm-hmm. There is no no reason why um, Mark Twain can't be a performance that Samantha Clemens gives. And Are you going to do this in her voice, the way uh, Twain did it in Huck's voice? Um, I'm going to do two two voices. So I'm going to have Samantha's point of view and Hucky's point of view, ah, and. Okay. The hard part is going to be Hucky's voice because, for one thing, it's going to change. You know, mm-hmm. um, it, it it's going to be hard. I'm going to have to rely on, um, and and because I'm not from Hannibal, I don't know what really know how people who are from Hannibal in the 19th century talked. But uh, there are mm-hmm. a number of really excellent books on uh, how Twain constructed Huck, Huck's speech. Yeah. And there is, in fact, one called Was Huck Black? Because Twain used um, black patterns of speech in constructing Huck's speech. And in other there's characters, also, too. There's, there's also, I'm, I'm sure you're familiar with it, a famous essay by Leslie Fiedler, which made his reputation oh, called yeah. Come Back on the Raft Again, Huck Honey, which is a homoerotic interpretation of the whole novel. I loved that essay. I read it when I was in college, you know, so that... That essay just—it it just was wonderful. I love that essay. And the—does—is mm-hmm. um, that—does that essay go in the one that he goes into um, Natty Bumpo? And yeah, it is. It is. It's all yeah, it is. about male male uh, group things in in American fiction. That that was just a wonderful essay. And he was also one of the first mainstream literary scholars that that really championed science fiction. Um, uh, Fiedler was the one who at one point wrote something like Philip Jose Farmer is the most important writer in the world or something along those lines, the most important science fiction writer in the world. And Fiedler even did an anthology of science fiction stories. Uh, so, did he? So, yeah, he? I might have read that. I, at one point I went and got all his books out of the library and read my way through them. I didn't care for his fiction, actually. No, his fiction was, was weird, although one of his novels was science fiction, but he wrote a book on... Yes. I think on Olaf Stapledon, um, 
years ago. So, I mean, I, he was one of the people, because being a young academic, he was one of the people I looked to, okay, you can have a career in academia and still like science fiction. And I thought mm-hmm. that was kind of cool. So let me ask, given that you are going to return to the novel sometime shortly, I assume, when do you feel you may be getting towards completing it? That's what people keep asking. <laughs> and I I have never developed a way of figuring out how long it's going to take me to do something because I always think, well, I'm done with that. And then I go back and look at it, and I'm not done with it at all. I barely even started. <laughs> and then I go back and I, I get that part done and I put it aside and go back to it. And there's still huge holes in it. You know, I, I'm not so good at eventually sometimes people come and take it away from me. I'm hoping I'm actually talking to um, – agents about the possibility that an agent would just come and take it away from me but um, I don't have an agent at the moment so Hmm. probably the person that looks like they're most capable of taking it away from me would be the person I would choose (laughs) well well, when you say take it away from you is that because it's there's basically a complete book there but you're going back and changing it or is it because you just yeah it's just my process my process is to think I've covered something and then go back you know, once I come to my senses, go back and realize, oh, no, there's there's whole other things in here. And I just keep expanding it. And really one of the things working with Michael Swanwick has done is make me understand that that's a perfectly okay way to do it. It drives Michael crazy, but I get stuff done that way. Yeah. I want to come back to something you – I mean, I'm intrigued by the novel and I would, I would love to read it. But it sounds like it might be a little ways yet. I would say at least a year. Yeah. Hey. A year is a perfectly reasonable amount of time. I'm intrigued by this essay that you mentioned you've written for the Smithsonian because it touches on something that I wonder about every now and again, and that is, without overly presaging the essay, which people should go and find, in 2014, what do you think science fiction is for? Ah. I, I think it, there's no one thing. You know, it's for lots of different things. Sure. The uh, essay that I was writing was about how how it functioned in helping uh, people imagine the future, how it helped scientists specifically and technologists think about, think of new ideas and think of solutions. And as I, I, I actually interviewed uh, 14 people as part of the essay at, at, it was the Smithsonian's essay and it was their idea that I interview people, but I kind of expanded the number of people I interviewed. So I talked to Gibson and Le Guin and Robinson and Stevenson and Chang and probably people, you know, I talked to about 10 science fiction writers and I talked to four technologists, two uh-huh. uh, actually educators for the most part, um, two people at MIT who were doing um, uh, a um, class in which they, these at the Media Lab, in which the, the club, class members read science fiction. They read very heavily every week. They read at least a novel a week plus a bunch of short stories and novellas. And then they discuss them in class and then they generate projects based on ideas that they've gotten after reading the science fiction, um, which may not be literally doing things that are in the science fiction, but where does their brain jump in after they have, have read all the science fiction? And the instructors of the class said that a lot of the students come in and they have never read any science fiction, which to me mm-hmm. is 
you know, in terms of people at MIT, I always thought of people at MIT when I was a student in Boston, they read tons of science fiction. It was the one place you could go where you could expect to meet people who read science fiction, but not anymore, apparently. And I asked why, and, and they said, well, they, the kids have to work so hard to get into MIT that they don't have time to read outside the pre prescribed courses. So they'll read their, their literature courses material, but they won't necessarily have time for pleasure reading. So in that sense, science fiction in, in that context is for expanding people's imaginations. I think that science fiction can help people come to terms with the future. You know, the whole future shock thing. I think science fiction prepares people for the future. You know, cyberspace certainly yeah. prepared people for the mm -hmm. future. Well, well that's, a, that's an interesting one, because I'm not entirely sure that cyberspace prepared people for the future or preempted the future. <laughs> <laughs> well, well I, we were talking about this last week, the, you know, the idea that the, the concept of cyberspace was one that attracted scientific-minded people enough that they almost set out to try and build it. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly what was inspiring the people at MIT, was, yeah. was the fact that... Um, I mean, Gibson says he never had any intent of of uh, giving anybody any ideas mm -hmm. or predicting anything um, or doing. I, I asked him about a dystopian point of view, and he said he always thought that this was just he, he just wanted naturalism. He wasn't looking for uh -huh. dystopianism, or he he thought that because his characters survived into the future without nu nuclear war that this was a utopian future <laughs> i wouldn't have thought of that yeah but do you do well, you, you have to read the essay because if, yeah, well, if yeah. it survives the the uh, editing process it's got to be reduced in size a bit um it'll have a lot of stuff from from a lot of important writers from stevenson and robinson and Gibson. Uh, on the other hand, Stevenson, Stevenson with his hieroglyph project has been, and that article he wrote in, in World, uh, that journal, World World Policy Review, I think it was called, right. was saying exactly. science fiction writers have abandoned their responsibility to give people inspiration for big ideas. And the, the, the failure of science fiction is reflected in the failure of our ability to design new models of nuclear reactors or new models of, um, of, 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 of jumbo liners and so forth and so on, which is very ironic, it seems to me, coming from somebody like Neil, who is as guilty of that sort of pessimistic information-laden future as anybody. Well, that's why he, he basically, he, he was saying that to Michael Crow, uh, the, the uh, president of, uh, of Arizona State University. Arizona State, and yeah. Crow said to him, very innovative uh, educator and Crow said to him, "Well, this is your fault. You should take some responsibility for this. You and all those other science fiction writers." Mm -hmm. So he took it to heart, and his essay there in uh, in the uh, Technical Review magazine was a uh, his taking it to heart. And then, uh -huh. as he thought about it, he realized that there were people with big ideas. You know. Um, Robinson, for instance, the Benfords, there, there are big ideas, science fiction writers mm -hmm. working in, in the world today. Um, and he has modified his views a bit. But, yeah, uh, I, I it, but he, I'm, I'm dealing with the, the hieroglyph project, too, in the essay. 
And that anthology is in what stage at this point? Do you know? It's at the publishers. Okay, so there will be the hieroglyph anthology. Oh yeah, it's, it's got. It sounds like it's got some great stories in it. I talked to Catherine Kramer, um, who uh-huh. is the one of the editors on it, and she's very gung ho on it. She just thinks there's some wonderful stuff there. Sterling, Doctor O, you know, to some extent the usual suspects, but also some mm-hmm. uh, some people I've never heard of. Brilliant. Well, it seems to me, Gary, that we are coming towards, as we do, the end of our time. So we might begin to wrap up. Um, <clears throat> I guess, I guess that I would ask you, as as we do begin to wrap up, how are you, how do you hope uh, questionable practices will be received as we are here on the cusp of, or just after its its release into the world? Mm-hmm. Well, I always hope my work will destroy science fiction, but I don't know if I can really take it. <laughs> <laughs> you you feel I'm destroying science fiction is a worthy goal? <laughs> I'm glad there are other people working on it too. Um, but of course, I hope that lots of people will read it and respond to it. And you know, that's what you want. That's what that's the whole reason for writing. So other people will read it. I hope I don't get any letters from my old friends whose uh, craziness I borrowed for the stories. But other than that. I want people to read it and tell me about it. And you want non-science fiction readers to read it, I would imagine as well, because, I mean, there's a story, uh, just to to mention, we've we've mentioned some stories. We mentioned Up the Fire Road, which is your Sasquatch story without mentioning the title of it, and Chop Wood, Carry Water is your Golem story, which I thought was related to Avram Davidson simply because he'd written a Golem story. And if I'm wrong about that, just keep quiet. Gary, that's awful. Oh, okay, okay. Am I wrong about that? I feel terribly stifled now, Gary. <laughs> oh, go ahead. <laughs> oh. I don't actually remember where that. Oh, I know they. It's Michael Swanwick's fault again. When I oh. went to Prague, um, John, my husband, was doing a a typographic show there, and we were oh. in Prague in the mid the last decade, middle of the last decade. And when I came back, I got an email from Michael Swanwick that said, quick, act without thinking. Write a story about the golem from the view of the, uh, from, you know, write a story from the golem's point of view. And as always, when I get something like that from Michael, and I get a lot of things like that from Michael, (laughs) I thought, oh, this will never do. You know, why? I I think, I bet hundreds of people have done that. And then I kind of researched it, and I realized, oh, well, actually, most of the stories about the golem are not from the golem's point of view. What would the golem's point of view be? And so I, I, that's where the story started, really not, not in Avram at all. But, of course, I can't help when I'm writing about a golem and I'm writing about Eastern Europe, I can't help but be influenced by Avram. But I didn't actually go and reread his stories for mood and setting. I read the Gollum stories for mood and setting. I read the Jewish Encyclopedia. I read mm. travelogues about about Prague and and books by uh, Rabbi Lowe, or not books, but essays by Rabbi Lowe, the the original Gollum rabbi, who was really a really fascinating and interesting man. And the his family, as depicted in there, is. His family, as as the information has come down to us, he had a very nice wife, jolly wife, who he consulted with on problems. 
and he had uh, a granddaughter who traveled to who died at the age of 92. She was a rabbi. She died en route to Jerusalem on a pilgrimage to Jerusalem at the age of 92. Wow. So that's all. All of that stuff, you know, made the story kind of larger and and bigger than just the golem's point of view. But the golem's point of view was kind of interesting. Once he started talking, he he's like. Nobody ever asked him anything before. It's like people who've watched all the Frankenstein movies and never read Mary Shelley's novel, and they realize the creature talks all the time. (laughs) (laughs) Well, but anyway, we hope it does very well. I hope it gets some attention from from, um, the... Literary tin house sort of crowd. I mean, there are a couple of stories, and there are a lot of stories in it that are very much uh, elusive to science fiction. The the whole steampunk quartet, but then there are stories in it that are virtually mainstream. One called Phantom Pain, which is I think original to the anthology, isn't it? Yes, that's a, that and the Golem story have never been published elsewhere. Uh-huh. I basically couldn't. I just found it really hard to market the story. I mean, just emotionally difficult to put them on the market. So I mm-hmm. didn't do that. Phantom Pain is is based on my father's life. I wonder because it's it's a haunting. My father story. was a, an amputee veteran, and oh, he he actually wrote a story about how he was wounded in that the final time. Um, and I used a lot of that story in the story. He he had, he finished, He told me I never knew this until kind of in the nineties. He sent it to me. Um, and he said that he had written the last lines of it while I was being born. And he'd had it typed up, you know, and everything by a secretary. I don't know if he'd ever sent it out. I don't think he had. But it was a perfectly well-written, polished 1940s uh, slick fiction story about a soldier uh, being wounded. Wow. That's, and it, that's... It followed as my father never talked about his war experiences when I was a kid or even when I was a young adult. Um, but towards the end of his life, he talked about them and it all matched up with the story. It's his story. Yeah. Uh huh. Interesting. Just out of curiosity, and we should be asking this after the podcast, did you ever talk to Kathy Goonan about this? Because she's used her father's actual journals in one of her novels. Right. Yeah. Kathy and I have talked about it. Yeah. And she definitely, we, we have a, a kinship with that topic and how, you, how do you deal with the but her father's still alive I, yeah. my father's gone yeah well well congratulations on the book it's very thank you delighted to see it to come out and look forward to what comes next to the the, the, the Clements novel which sounds fascinating to, to the essay in the Smithsonian and to whatever new stories you have underway Thank you, thank you, thank you for for this chat. It's been delightful. It has been. Thank you. And we look forward to sort of catching up with you further up the road, as it were, sort of at conventions or wherever it may be. Okay. Well, I'll see you in a couple. I'll see you in a couple of weeks at ICFA. Absolutely. Yep. But not Jonathan. No, no, no. No, he's never been to ICFA. They won't let him come because he lives in Australia. Ah. And Gary, as always, I shall talk to you next week, an hour out of sync and possibly somewhere else around the country. Who knows? Absolutely. I'll be back in Chicago at this point. Okay. uh, All right. Talk to you. Bye-bye. Until then. Bye. Bye.